1: Hey, everyone. I'm Ben Rhodes, and you're listening to the first of a series of special episodes for Crooked Conversations that we are calling The World As It Is, Stories from the Obama White House. Uh, Clearly, a bit of a contrast to today's White House. I was the deputy national security advisor to President Obama, uh, which means I was in charge of his communications on foreign policy, his speech writing on foreign policy, and I also advised him on a number of issues taking the lead on things like our secret negotiations with Cuba to normalize relations uh, and our efforts to protect and secure the Iran deal uh, as it made its way through Congress. I recently wrote a memoir called The World As It Is that came out earlier this summer, and I wanted to take a deeper dive into the backstory and some of the issues and themes that I deal with in the book, uh, which covers all 10 of my year's with President Obama through his campaign and his White House uh, and also brings in some of the people who were there with me and worked closely with me, people, some of whom you know well. So throughout the next month, we'll be airing interviews that I did with Jen Psaki about Russia, uh, Bernadette Meehan about the Cuban negotiations, uh, and Tommy Vitor about how the Benghazi uh, non-scandal was part of what led ultimately to Trump. But today we're going to kick things off with a conversation I had with Cody Keenan and John Favreau. John and Cody were the two chief speechwriters for all eight years uh, of the Obama White House. Uh, I was kind of their wingman uh, as I took the lead on the foreign policy and national security speeches. Um, so I wanted to start in on this topic of you know how do you how do you write speeches for Barack Obama, um, which on the one hand is a very exciting thing for a speechwriter because uh, he's obviously a great speaker. Uh, But on the other hand, it can be a little daunting uh, because the expectations are high. Uh, In the book, I describe kind of this strange sequence of events that pulled me into the Obama campaign. Uh, I was essentially doing free work for them on on foreign policy, Um, ended up getting pulled into a a debate prep with Obama where I was so nervous uh, I could barely uh, speak up uh, when it was my turn to offer my uh, advice, uh, but John you know, had also thrown some speech writing my way, uh, and ultimately, uh, the guy who was the top foreign policy staffer for President Obama at the time, Mark Lippert, uh, he got called up to go to Iraq. And so the combination of the fact that John was tired of dealing with external foreign policy advisors on speeches and uh, <laughs> Lippert's call up to Iraq opened up this job for me. But before I get into what it was like for me to try to think through you know, how do you learn Obama's voice... You know, John, you you were you know pretty young guy uh, coming off the Kerry campaign when you got this job for kind of the hot new thing in Democratic politics. Like, where do you start uh, when yeah. suddenly you realize you know you need to write not just good speeches but good speeches in the voice of a guy like Barack Obama? Uh,
2: well, first I'll say everyone should go buy this book immediately. As you guys know, I don't read much <laughs> if it's not on Twitter, <laughs> and I devoured your book in like a week, and it's fantastic, and I feel like I learned, I learned a lot, even though I was there for most of it. Um, so when I started with Obama, and I had just come off the Kerry campaign, the best way I can describe it is I almost had to unlearn the lessons that I had learned about speech writing on the Kerry campaign. And this is not a critique of John Kerry particularly, it's sort of a critique of Um, Democratic and Republican speech writing in general, in which, you know, a lot of politicians sound like politicians. There's applause lines, and there's cliches, and there's sound bites that the communication team wants you to have in the speech so that the press will pick up a certain quote. And so you write in a certain style that seems a little, is a little stilted, and it also seems um, like it's the same, like you've heard it from a whole bunch of other politicians before. And when I was preparing to start the job in the Senate with Obama, I spent that Christmas reading Dreams from My Father. And as I read that book, I thought, wow. And it was it was like a bigger wow than when I heard the 2004 convention speech. Because that was this big, inspiring speech to a huge audience. But Dreams from My Father was incredibly honest and gritty at times. And it's just, he didn't sound like a politician. And I read that book and I thought to myself, I have no idea how a guy who writes this honest and open uh, is gonna be a politician, but I would love to watch him try and be there for it. And so when I started in the Senate, um, most of my time was spent sitting down with Obama before a big speech, listening to what was on his mind, typing everything out and really just trying to channel him as best as i could by going to press conferences with him when he held town halls with people i would listen to how he answered the questions i would pour through transcripts of his interviews um and it was basically just it's like learning by osmosis you just try to figure out not just how he speaks but how he thinks and also free yourself from the conventions of typical speech writing for politicians
1: yeah, I mean, I, I remember, you know, I had actually done speech writing for a, a bunch of different people, and, you know, like Mark Warner, um, who thought about running for president once upon a time, and, uh, you know, Lee Hamilton, this kind of foreign policy expert who ran a think tank, and, and some other people, and what I remember is that I didn't tailor, like, what I wrote to who they were, you know, I just kind of wrote yeah. a text that they could use. Um and when I went to work for Obama, I remember you telling me that, um, you know, I I needed to really listen to his voice. You know, obviously I read Dreams from My Father, had the same experience you did. But I remember going back and listening to like an archive file that you guys had created on the campaign already of all of his interviews. Yeah. And just hearing like here's how this guy talks um, and because the, the speech has to kind of sound like how he would talk. I, I remember my first uh, really big speech for the campaign um, – I was still living in D.C. in the summer of uh, 2007 when I got an email from you, John, with the headline uh, "Terror It's Not for Terrorists Anymore," um, <laughs> because we had to write this big speech on counterterrorism that was going to be, you know, collecting inputs from you know 50 different outside advisors that they gather on these campaigns and turning it into something coherent. And uh, I remember getting a lot of confidence from, you know, Obama to to stay true to like what he wanted to say in that speech. Now, it turned out in that speech, he also ended up saying that he'd go into Pakistan to get Osama bin Laden, um, and he would pursued diplomacy with Iran, both of which were oddly very controversial things to say at the time. Uh, and everybody kind of- Promises kept. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it you know, worked out. Um, but I mean, it was just kind of this crazy thing where um, saying what he wanted to say, like going into Pakistan to get bin Laden seemed like a common sense thing. Um, but, you know, it broke some taboo that we shouldn't say that we're going to do that. We should say we should work with Pakistan. And uh, that's where I learned that writing this the issue of writing in his voice, but also the issue of like just coming out and saying what you believe, you know, being honest and authentic. Um, and <laughs> what I'll never forget is that everybody pounced on this Biden, Hillary, you know, many of our future colleagues um, as kind of naive and experienced. And I get out to Chicago and the first day that uh, I'm going to go to work at the campaign, I get, wake, wake up at like 5 a.m. to an email from Dan Pfeiffer saying this is the worst thing that's happened yet on the campaign. <laughs> and there's all these stories about how like Pervez Musharraf, the president of Pakistan, was like cracking down on protesters and blaming Obama for you know causing this international incident. And uh, I, I came into the office and thought everybody was going to hate me and said the first guy I see is like Cody. Sitting there in like a corduroy jacket, <laughs> and uh, someone comes and grabs me and is like, "We got to deal with this Pakistan thing," and I'm like, "Well, what are we gonna do?" And it turned out we we're gonna write an op-ed for the the Mason City Globe Gazette <laughs> in Iowa, not exactly the <laughs> Washington Post. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, to me, I had to learn his voice, and I had to learn that like there was kind of a fearlessness about that campaign. You know, that we weren't gonna, you know, trim our positions to what normal Washington politicians say, and we we're gonna not be afraid to have fights with people. Um, but I mean, Cody, you were like, uh, you know, you were, I think you were an intern at the time, which seems kind of extraordinary, uh, given all that you've done since. But like, what was your, when you like walked into that campaign office, like what was the, the vibe that you felt there and how did that translate into to learning to write for Obama?
3: Well, I had a very different experience from you guys. Cause this is my first speech writing job. <clears throat> I've just been doing it for 11 years. You know, yeah, Fav- <laughs> you're still in your first job, man. <laughs> yeah. Favs brought me on as his intern. Uh, and I'd already worked on the Hill for several years for Ted Kennedy. That's where I got my start. And I started writing, you know, a couple speeches for him towards the end. And this was a guy who, you know, was very different than Obama. He kind of gave Kennedy something and then Hurricane Ted would blow on the Senate floor yeah, and the pages yeah. would go everywhere. He'd read like half of it and then he'd just go off. Yeah, just start yeah. screaming about the middle class. Um, so I, my difference was to, to learn his voice. There were a lot of similarities in what Favs said. I you know, kind of binged everything on YouTube. I read both of his books, but for me in the beginning, it was, it was a lot of mimicry, you know, yeah. just cause I hadn't met him. I didn't understand, you know, his worldview and what he wanted to say. So I would kind of, you know, mimic what you guys put down and take things from, you know, dreams and audacity, which were kind of the texts of the campaign, uh, until I actually finally got to meet him and talk to him and get to know him. I mean, that's the most important thing about speech writing. Uh, and you, you mentioned something earlier that. I think is really important is that any speech you write for somebody should be something that only they can say. Yeah, you know, I think when Obama's speeches really sang, there were things that only could have come from his mouth. And when he gave a speech on, you know, a more mundane topic that could have been delivered by any other politician, that's when they kind of fell flat. But that yeah. you know that campaign was amazing. It was a startup, you know, and it was growing exponentially. I think you know I didn't get there till June of '07. And by then there were maybe, I don't know, 50 of us. And by the end of the campaign, there were like 500 packed into the same space. We were just growing by leaps and bounds. And it was a hopeful time. People were energetic about politics. They were excited. You know, we knew that there was a lot in the country that needed fixing, but we all believed because we had this guy who empowered young people to go out to Iowa and South Carolina, Nevada, New Hampshire, wherever, and just empowered them to go out and talk to people and meet people. He made this bet that together we could change the country. And it was really, it sounds like I've been drinking the Kool-Aid, but it was really heady and exciting. And we were grappling with big issues like war and peace and the economy and healthcare, and not your kind of mundane daily outrages that we're dealing with today.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I remember, you know, is we were like 20 points down in the polls, which nobody forgets, and like, you know, all the stories about how inevitable Hillary Clinton was. And I described in the book as actually like the happiest time in my professional life, because it was like you were with a bunch of like-minded people who were just letting it rip, you know, trying to 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 ride this wave as far as we could. And it was interesting how the speeches became a venue for like a broader message and like something both you guys said about how, you know, it has to be authentic to him and and one of the reasons I always say Obama is such a effective speaker is that like his 2004 convention speech is the same speech as his farewell address. You know, th- there's a common thread through what he said, but it also made kind of soaring rhetoric Uh, accessible to people, like all those victory speeches uh, after the Iowa caucus and the victory speech we gave after we lost the New Hampshire primary, which we can talk about in a second. Like the reason those worked is because like they were believable from him. You know, yes, we can. Uh, I remember, John, you and I writing that speech like in the car. Weirdly, we were driving from like Manchester, New Hampshire to Concord and we thought he was going to win. Usually you write a victory speech and a losing speech and we only wrote a victory speech because, you know, Joel Benenson uh, told us we were up by 10 points. Sorry, Joel. <laughs> um, and um, and uh, we're riding in the car and we're so excited and we have this distillation of this yes, we can message. And you're, I remember, John, you writing that line about, you know, in the improbable story of America, there's never been anything false about hope and uh, which again, what I always tell people is, close your eyes and imagine, like, again, not to uh, you know John Kerry or Hillary Clinton to giving that speech, you know, right? It wouldn't work, right? Well, it'd, it's it'd al- be absurd.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's also like people now are like, you know, where's the Obama-like figure, or who's going to come along in 2020? And like that, the, it does have to fit with the person and the next hopefully democratic president of the United states is not going to sound like obama he's he or she yeah. is not necessarily going to yeah. be given and shouldn't and it's not necessarily yeah. it's maybe huge inspiring rally speeches aren't the way to go for that person like you really do have to tailor the speeches to yourself and i think what people don't understand about speech writing is uh, or at least successful speech writing is it's not about just like finding someone who's a good writer, like I think the three of us are really good writers, but there's plenty of great writers out there. It's really about figuring out who the person that you're writing for is, what they believe, and that requires that person to have a strong sense of self and to have confidence in who they are and what their beliefs are and to have that fearlessness, Ben, that you were talking about. And just to go back to like when I when, when you joined the staff – Part of the reason is, um, like, you know, the first couple months of the campaign, I was writing all these speeches. I had help from Adam Frankel, who was on staff with us, and then Cody became our intern. And But the three of us were, you know, it was a lot of work. We were overwhelmed. But we had this great relationship with all the domestic policy people, the political people, the communications people, and all the speeches went really well. And when we had this first big foreign policy speech to do, um, and... Obama wanted to speak in that fearless language. He wanted to sort of defy the conventional Washington wisdom on foreign policy. And yet, as the drafts went out to all of his foreign policy advisors, most of whom were former Clinton advisors, at one point, they kept pushing against the speech and trying to put it in that conventional box. And everything that he would say that was different or unique or something that the Democratic establishment didn't believe they would uh, yell at me about it and be really annoyed. And my problem was I didn't have a foreign policy background, so I didn't have the credentials to push back for the first time. And then Mark Lippert tells me, well, this guy Ben Rhodes is a fantastic writer, but also he you know, helped write the Iraq study group report and the 9-11 Commission report, so he has this strong foreign policy background. And why don't you take, take a look at his edits? And when I took a look at your edits, I'm like, oh. He knows exactly how Obama thinks <laughs> without really yeah, well, knowing and, and, and him. And you, you sort of figured it, it out. And I was like, uh, yeah, let's hire this guy. This would be much better.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I wanted to – but I also – like it's funny. Like having come from that world of like think tanks and kind of uh, Washington speak about foreign policy, I was like desperate for somebody who was telling a story. You know, I mean yeah. the, the thing that launched Obama, people sometimes forget, is like the opposition to the Iraq war and the speech he gave in 2002 – um, against the Iraq war where he said it could be a war of unintended costs and unintended consequences and fan the flames of the worst impulses of the Arab world, not the best and, and on and on. And it was very prescient, but it was also very raw. It was just a guy telling you what he thought and not somebody filtering what he thought through kind of a series of, you know, uh, think tank approved phrases. Um, yeah. and, and it was fun to work on a campaign where the the story you were telling about America and about Domestic policy and foreign policy was all part of the same story. They weren't like all bifurcated,
3: you know. Yeah. Um, and, that that was one yeah. of the ways he made it easier f- for us to be speechwriters too, by yeah. bringing us in and keeping us close and elevating us to you know the same levels as anyone else. Because that gave us the ability to push back. Yeah. You know, there's That's kind of exactly a built-in right. there's kind of a built-in timidity in Washington and even people that come join a campaign like ours, and it gave us the ability to say, no, this is what he wants to say.
1: Yeah. No, and because uh, everybody knew that he. He actually cared about the story he was telling. And well, to go through a, just a few speeches here, uh, mm. the, the, the next big foreign policy speech on that campaign was when we went to Berlin. Um, mm. And John, I remember you and I holding up at a conference room on that. We, we you know knew we were going to give this big outdoor speech in Berlin. We were going to do it in front of the Brandenburg Gate, but Angela Merkel didn't like that because she thought that should be pre- uh, reserved for presidents. Yeah, so did Obama, by the way. I remember he was annoyed when he found out we'd even asked about doing it there. But we knew we were going to have this big crowd. And I remember you were reading this book by, was it Andre Cherney? Andre, um, yeah, who was bombers? my boss on the Kerry yeah. campaign. Yeah, and he, yeah, he wrote a book and it's called... A good book. Go no, go ahead. Yeah, uh, no, I it was remember this, you it found was, like, a great story.
2: It was this book called Candy Bombers, and Andre wrote it. He got really into this history, and it was about uh, during the Berlin airlift when um, you know American pilots were not just dropping um, food... And supplies to people in Berlin who were behind the wall, but also candy to children. And it was just this, this anecdote about how, you know, this American decency sort of paid off for our national security because it was about the world respecting America and looking up to America and us facing the Soviet army and realizing that we may not be able to match them with our army and we don't want to fight them on a battlefield, but that we can have the capacity to win hearts and minds around the world and show the world what America stands for. And um, after eight years of George Bush, um, we thought this was a particularly compelling message.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, and I I remember it was so great because like Obama was making a point that we had to be more about about more than our military power. Uh, and so there's this great anecdote about using our military power to uh, win hearts and minds as well. And uh, you know, I remember, you know, Obama didn't actually spend a lot of time on that speech. You know, every now and then, usually yeah. he digs in, and he, you know, there's 10, 15, 20 rounds of edits. He was traveling to Iraq and Afghanistan first, and he just didn't have a lot of time on it. But I remember the one thing he really liked is we you know, we found in that book an anecdote of the like, Germans running out into the streets as the candy bombers are dropping these uh, this food and candy and. A woman declaring in the middle of the you know the crowd, "We are a community of fate," um, which was a great line. Like, I because mean, basically one of the things you have to do as your speechwriter, you're, you're trying to find a way to say the same thing. You know, we done. We are the ones we're waiting for, and our destiny will be written, you know, by us, not for us. And that 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 sense of collective effort and community. You know, here was like a, a an anecdote of somebody saying exactly our campaign message back then. Yeah. So I remember we ended the speech on that line. And Obama, when he read it, like, that was the one thing he went to. He loved that. And so we even put in, like, the German word because, you know, we had delusions of grandeur here. You know, <laughs> if we're going to Berlin, you know, Kennedy said, ich bin ein Berliner. We needed some German. Um, so what I remember is that we were flying into Germany. And first of all, Obama was nervous that nobody would show up for the speech. I remember him asking me, like, how mu- many people could be there. And I was like, oh, could be tens of thousands. And he's like, I don't know, maybe no one will be there. And we landed. And they were like, crowds from the motorcade in, even though he was a sender, there were thousands of people in front of our hotel. And you could tell there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people at this speech. So I immediately got incredibly nervous. Uh, and one thing that you guys know, th- th- there's a very special anxiety that only a speechwriter feels, which is like the last few hours before it goes out, you become Terror. terrified that there's some mistake in it. Um, yeah. Now, unlike the current White House, we actually had, like, fact-checkers and people who, who spent a lot of time kind of helping you catch those things. But Cody I started one. reading again and again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Cody did marry one. I did. Um, and who um, actually also helped with my book. But She still
3: tells me I'm wrong for free.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember I'm sitting there and, like, there's this German word. Like, I, I'm going to butcher it, but it's, like, this community fate word was Schicksalsgeimschaft uh, or, you know, Schicksalsgeimschaft. Uh, I'm sure yeah. I said that wrong. but, And I'm looking at this word and, and I'm thinking, does that really mean community fate? So I Google it and a bunch of stuff comes up in German and there's like a couple of like Nazi references. So I call like our German expert and he's like, no, no, it's fine. And I remember I called Mark Levitt, our advanced staffer, oh, who yeah. was sitting with a translator, this German guy who was going to translate the speech. And Mark was like a good person for this because he was like this eclectic kind of intellectual guy. And I asked him, like, "Hey, can you check with this guy that there's nothing wrong with this word?" And he's like, "Oh, the guy's so relieved you asked." Uh, that was actually like the theme of Hitler's one of his first speeches at the Reichstag. Um, <laughs> and I'm sitting there realizing I, I was like three hours away from putting a speech on a teleprompter that could have like led to you know Obama echoes Hitler in Berlin. Uh, I mean, the you know the gravity of this potential calamity. Sinking in on me, but one of the things I lo- love about Obama is I go up to his room, or actually, it was Reggie's room, at the time Reggie Love, and you know I tell him this, and he kind of pauses and he holds his hand up, like, you know, first of all, he's like, you serious, like Hitler, and I'm like, yes, you know, this is a big problem, and I thought he'd be mad, but then he just broke into laughing, and he's like, okay, Reggie, we have a new employee of the month here, <laughs> um, and you know, there was that sense that like, this was high stakes stuff, and these were high wire speeches, but. Like, you know, you could laugh about it and you could, you know, yeah. know that your boss wasn't going to yell at you. You know, uh, it kind of took the edge off of like, you know, what was a really new experience for all all three of us, like being these young people uh, on a, you know, likely winning presidential campaign. I'm Ben Rhodes and we'll be back with more of my conversation with Cody Keenan and John Favreau about speech writing for President Obama after this break. You know what's great about eating your favorite thing? It's your favorite thing, and it gets there, and you're eating it, and that's very exciting. For me, that would probably be, I don't know, some Chinese food, and and you look at it, and you're you're looking forward to that meal, and you dig in. But you know what's not great? When your favorite food is not available for delivery, and you just can't get what you're craving. Well, that's why I am very excited to introduce Postmates, the app that adds a delivery option to your favorite restaurants. Truly a game changer here with Postmates. Just imagine anything you want to eat delivered to your home. You don't have to do anything other than go on the Postmates app. You don't have to drive. You don't have to find a parking space. You don't even have to pick up the phone to order food. That is how much the world is changing for the better because of Postmates. You can just download the app and order 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You can wake up in the middle of the night. You can deal with that craving. You can get that delivery that you need. Postmates will bring you what you want within the hour. You can even see where your food is and track your driver. If you really have that kind of craving, you just want to stare at your phone and watch that little dot get closer to your house. If you forgot. To get eggs and milk the last time you're at the store, no problem. If you're craving that tasty burger or chicken lo mein, check. If you're looking for the perfect bottle of red wine, that summer beer, that IPA, that rosé, order up. Postmates is your new long-term munchies booty call. It's one way to think about it. So for a limited time, Postmates is giving you $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app today and use this code, CROOKED CONVOS, C O N V O S, CROOKED CONVOS. That's the code, for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. That's a pretty good deal. I mean, you know, you'd have to try to eat $100 for the food uh, in your first seven days, and, and I recommend that you do try that. So save the hassle, get the food you love fast at Postmates with the code CROOKED CONVOS. <laughs> I was gonna say I remember when you called
2: me or emailed me I can't remember which to let me know it was like 6 a.m. DC time and I felt faint (laughs) I was like I can't believe we almost did it but you're right but then he you said he was fine with it and I actually think him him being like that and being so kind and patient and willing to let us make mistakes is why we were able to be creative and bold and different on the speeches. Because if that had gone another way and he had yelled at you for that and yelled at us for that, then next time around, it would have sort of like closed off um, what we imagined we could write in a speech. Like we'd, we'd be writing scared all the time. And I think when you write scared, yeah. then it doesn't, you don't have quite a good product there, you know?
1: Yeah, no. And I, you know, I, I just remember feeling like, you know, obviously, we changed the ending uh, and it wasn't quite <laughs> as good, but I'm glad we did. Um, but, you know, I, I, I remember feeling exactly what you said that, like, you know, we're um, we're we're empowered to take risks. We're kind of enlisted as partners. And, um, you know, we also can laugh at the most tense moments, um, which was part of that whole experience of that campaign. Um but I wanted to get into like a couple other uh, another topic that brings in a few speeches. Uh, you know, I. Unfortunately for me, uh, somehow became like a co-author of Obama's apology tour globally, um, but which I always thought was, and you, you know, we talked about this a lot, like rooted in a fundamental either misunderstanding or misrepresentation of Obama's entire worldview. It's, it's actually an important debate to have because essentially, you know, he never apologized, but what he would do is he would acknowledge past flaws in American history, but talk about how democracy is how we improved ourselves and pursued a more perfect union and uh, actually was celebrating the the greatness of our country and being able to change. Now, you guys each wrote, I think, uh, or were the speechwriter on like the two best speeches about this. I mean, better than, than anything I did. Uh, John, you with the race speech and Cody, you with uh, the speech he gave in Selma on, on the was 50th anniversary of the, the march in Selma. Um, so I just wanted to ask you guys, like, first of all, you know, John, when you're talking about for that race speech or just a lot of the speeches you did that dealt with these kind of difficult and thorny social issues, like how, how did you find, how did you try to help him find kind of this balance between being willing to look back, and look squarely at you know both historical problems, but you know with race like current problems, um, and be candid about like where we're falling short. But kind of you know draw on American history to to look forward. I mean, and the race speech obviously you know that's yeah. a, a terrible moment for the campaign. You got Reverend Wright out there, and it looked like the campaign could fall apart. And the speech really was this kind of hail mary to to save the campaign. I, you know, I can't imagine. I mean, I remember the weight that was dropped on you. Like, how, how do you begin to deal with that when you sit down to talk to him about it? I mean, again, it's it,
2: so much of this comes from him and this sort of like common sense approach to speech writing, which doesn't sound and, and to message, which doesn't sound very inspiring. But it's like he just he tries to make sure that he says what's obvious to everyone. Right. Like he, he can't give a speech about race in America and not acknowledge, honestly, that America was founded on the original sin of slavery. Like, everyone knows that, you know? And so, like, this idea- Kind of be leaving out important detail. Right, like this idea that the President of the United States um, has to go out on the world stage and not acknowledge that the United States has made um, big and even grievous mistakes in the past through its policies and through its decisions is crazy because then people aren't going to listen to you when you try to talk about what, why the United States is good and what good it can do in the world. Yeah, um, And it actually, yeah. I mean, it started in that, the, the apology tour started in the Berlin speech. I was reading it before yeah. um, we yeah. started this conversation. And it's so funny because when you actually read the The paragraph that launched the, the language, apology yeah. tour thing. It says, I know my country has not perfected itself. At times we've struggled to keep the promise of liberty and equality for all of our people. We've made our share of mistakes, and there are times when our actions around the world have not lived up to our best intentions. But I also know how much I love America. And then he goes on and talks about how wonderful America is. Like That's a pretty mild paragraph, and there's probably a yeah. lot of people, <laughs> yeah. especially a lot of people on the left, who would say... Yeah, to put it mildly, the, the United States yeah. has not lived up to its yeah. best intentions at times around the world. But I also think, and I think that, Cody, and you should talk about the Selma speech, you and the president did this best uh, in that yeah. speech of any other speech he's ever given to talk yeah, about totally why, when you t- when you acknowledge that America has made mistakes and America ha- has faults, it gives you the credibility to talk about why democracy and specifically american democracy has such potential and such power to do good in this country and around the
3: world i i think i think it's even more than that it's not just pointing out our flaws to gain credibility it's actually an aspirational thing yeah you know pointing out our flaws is a patriotism that acknowledges the darker parts of our history and the fact that we overcame them it celebrates the fact that we overcame them and you know, on the quote unquote apology tour, that's what people love about America. He represented that. It's that we can change, that we're constantly pressing the boundaries, trying to live up to those founding ideals. And no other president has talked about American exceptionalism as often as Barack Obama has. I'm not kidding. Find me one. You know, this isn't like hyperbolic. I mean, and, and that's precisely because he didn't go out on purpose and try to do it as many times as he could. It's because no other president has lived American exceptionalism like he has. Right. You know the the speech that kind of birthed him on the national stage in two thousand and four. He said, "In no other country on earth is my story even possible." And every president before that, you know, of course, their stories possible. It's possible pretty much anywhere. His life is proof that we are exceptional in nature.
1: Yeah, and I, I, you know, to your point, John. Like I remember the um, the the response. Like when I w- the, so when the apology tour was birthed in <laughs> government. Uh, and I write about this in the book, is this trip we took, the first overseas trip in uh, April of 2009. We go to, you know, the UK for a a G20 summit of the major economies in the midst of the financial crisis. We go to a NATO summit, um, you know, in the midst of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And here's the situation, right? Like the United States had just you know, played by far the largest role. Our irresponsibility had plunged the world into some spiraling, potentially Great Depression. And we have to go past the hat in London to try to get countries to just, to, to, you know, pursue a stimulus for the global economy. Then we have to go to this NATO summit where there are all these countries that, you know, oppose the Iraq war and, you know, the Afghan war is in its eighth year because we took our Afghanistan and we have to ask them to make troop commitments. And so, you know, Obama just started acknowledging, like, you know, we, you know, we bear our share of the burden for the responsibility for what happened in the financial crisis. We need to listen, uh, not just lecture people. But to your point, they they were pretty innocuous um, uh, phrases that just kind of acknowledged what everybody could see was true. Um, But while at the same time mixing in what Cody said, like always pointing to, uh, then I remember he gave a speech in the Turkish parliament about, you know, the dark, Chapters in our past, because Turkey has some pretty dark chapters too. Um, but saying that you know, democracy is how we perfect ourselves, and really aspirational. That the story of America is yes, it's about getting credibility, but as Cody said, it's also about like you can be inspired by our story that you can make your other your countries better, just like we have. And what I've never quite understood is like this became like a it was like touching a third rail. Um, <laughs> it seemed. I mean, I want to take it seriously. Like, it seemed like genuine <laughs> among some people on the right. Like that, just acknowledging this or acknowledging mistakes or was was really like. Uh, I mean, I it was one of those things where the the blowback was so severe, that, and I didn't yeah. take it seriously at first because I didn't understand it. But but like, why do you think it is? And you know, to be candid, part of it may be because he's an African American president. Um, but why do you think this? Like there was this volcanic, uh, you know, reaction to this this way that he pursued things. Well, I it mean, became a I, cudgel to question yeah.
3: his patriotism, yeah. right? And kind of the inherent tension here is do you hear criticism, self-criticism of America's shortcomings as, you know, love of country or loathing of country? And we see this right now with the NFL and taking a knee, right? Yeah. Are they – you know, if you take a knee, are you ungrateful? Do you hate the flag? Are you, you know, crapping on the troops, or are you pointing out our flaws and saying we need to address these and make them better? Yeah, I consider that patriotism. I consider protest patriotic, and that's kind of the inherent tension in this debate. Yeah, well, and I and, think
2: and, that's but, been we, the yeah. the right has it hadn't just didn't just start with Obama. I, I always remember um, a line that George H. W. Bush used to attack Bill Clinton in the 1992 campaign. And he used to say, like, you know, uh, Governor Clinton thinks America is just some other country on the list of countries between, you know, the United States, between Ah. Uganda and something else, right? And I forget what the line was. But it is this idea that the left and liberals and Democrats don't like America and that they don't believe that America is exceptional and that they always have to apologize for America. But what I love so much about... The Selma speech is it sort of takes this head on. And what's so funny now, uh, looking back at the Selma speech, is that what really set him off and what helped you guys in that speech is something that the president's current lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, (laughs) said. (laughs) 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 He said something like, Obama (laughs) hates America or doesn't really love America or some bullshit like that. But my favorite – I mean, you take it on that speech when you guys said – That's what America is, not stock photos or airbrushed history or feeble attempts to define some of us as more American than others. We respect the past, but we don't pine for the past. We don't fear the future. We grab for it. America is not some fragile thing. And no none of us knew at the time, but it was really setting up. It's a critique of Donald Trump because Donald Trump Mm -hmm. does believe that America is – Airbrushed history and feeble attempts to define some of us as more American than others that's his whole make America great again is this sort of like corny cheesy flag waving bullshit, <laughs> and it is not yeah. what really yeah. makes America great, which is the ability to improve ourselves over time, you know,
1: yeah, yeah, no and what I love is like it it takes that head on because uh you, because sometimes politicians, you know, they they get scared when the debate goes in this direction, right? And so we become kind of Trump light, you know, and we're, yeah. we're almost as as corny. And but what what Obama claimed in the Selma speech and in a lot of his best speeches was like the patriotism of people who worked to change America for the better, mm. uh, and that you know the the types of people who recognized America's flaws but just didn't sit back and did something about it. I'll never forget Cody reaching out to me. Is one of the more fun things I've ever done on the speech writing is, like, Obama had I called you and Cody and I think said, like, you were almost there, but let it rip. You know, it wasn't like it, like really let it go. And one of the things he wanted you to do was to basically kind of have a name check rule of honor of basically progressive heroes. You know, the the some of them are not the people that we hear about in speeches like this. And I remember we had this amazing email chain where we're going back and forth and making riffs about, like, Jackie Robinson stealing home, and and uh, but we, uh, talk about that uh, like that experience of just like being turned loose by him to to come up with this kind of roll call of the the people who stood for that type of exceptionalism.
3: Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, in the, for the big picture, you know, what Selma was was downtrodden people without any power or privilege who risked their lives for the right to vote. And what could possibly be more American than that, right? Yeah. Challenging the power structure and ultimately winning. And, you know, our history has always been told by presidents as, you know, the founders this, the founders that, yeah. GIs, D-Day. And that's about it. The yeah. rest of the story is kind of left The country off. was like birthed out of like the head of George
1: Washington and has been <laughs> – frozen in time ever since and it's, perfect. Yeah. And it's a, a flying eagle gripping <laughs> yeah. like a document that was never changed when in fact, even the constitution has had to be changed many times.
3: So I took Obama a draft two days before the speech and it was a snow day, which was great because the government was shut down and it meant all his meetings were canceled. And we actually got to pass drafts back and forth, which made it really fun. And he said, you took a half swing on this. Take a full that's swing. Right, that's right.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, that's which awesome. is liberating. Yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, let's do this. And he was like, go find me, you know, a couple of a couple of great Americans that we can work in here. You know, he gave me a couple examples. said, go find me some America. Call roads." And I think you were driving to New York City for something. Yeah,
1: we were like going back and
3: forth. Yeah, like uh, Anne and the Babies. So I'm in the
1: back seat with my like baby in the car seat. And I'm like, you know, how about Jackie Robinson? Like, we are Elvis and I mean, Bruce yeah, Springsteen yeah, and yeah, Studs Terkel. Not all those made it in. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so I took yeah. Obama a list of like 50. He was like, oh, okay. Tone this down a little bit. But it ended up with great stuff like, you know, we're not just Lewis and Clark, but Sacagawea. We're Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, Immigrants, lost boys of Sudan, Holocaust survivors, Soviet defectors, the slaves who built the White House. And, you know, it just tells not only a truer story of America, but a bigger story of America. And it was just this kind of joyful and really an exceptional ending. story. What other, what yeah, other country
2: yeah. has these characters, has this mix of, of people who were downtrodden and persecuted um, from so many yeah. different faiths, from so many different walks of life? And they came together and each of them made this country a little more just, you know. And yeah. And, and
1: how much more does like that's what appeals to people around the world, too. From my perspective, it's like Mitt Romney's no apology book is not what people love about America around the world. Right? They love the fact that immigrants came here. They love the fact that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. You know, they, they love the fact that we're always at the, you know, often at the leading edge of social change like gay rights. And and, uh, you know, that speech really captures it.
3: Yeah, and I, I saw it uh, – somebody described it afterwards as the new litany of American saints, which I thought was really cool. I mean, it's like what yeah. you were saying, Favs. He, Barack Obama says things that we all know are true. It's just no, nobody's said them before. Yeah. yeah. And I, was also cool, think, I think Jackie Robinson was your idea, Ben. Yeah, he, he, yeah. Because you're an old school Mets, Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Yeah. And, and it's uh, like, Obama loved that one, and he he added a little bit to it. And if you go back and watch the Selma speech, you it's the only point where he chokes up a little bit. He says, we're Jackie Robinson – Enduring scorn and spiked cleats and pitches coming straight to his head and stealing home in the World Series, anyway. And you can just, if you watch closely, you can see his voice catch a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, because he was like, you know, I think people, Tony C. Coates had that great line about, you know, Obama not falling, you know? Um, Yeah. But. You know, he had kind of a Jackie Robinson experience. It, like, he had to kind of do everything better. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, you could see the emotion in him there. And I, one other, another thing I just wanted to get at is the experience of speech writing. You know, as Cody's saying, here, there we're, like, knocking things back and forth. Like, you never expect you know, when we were all 20-somethings coming on the campaign that, you know, years later, we'd be sitting there writing words to the president of the United States, just knocking it back and forth on Blackberries. or, you know, some of our best speeches, you know, were written in, in, in pretty funny places. John, I, I, a story I tell in the book is when we had to go to Buckingham Palace um, oh, yeah. in, in 2011 on a state visit. And, um, you know, first of all, he, it was another one of these speeches where, ironically, given how much he's derided for apologizing you know, he actually ended up giving a kind of soaring defense of Western values in the, Mm. uh, you know, Westminster, the heart of the British Parliament. Um, And so we were working on this speech, but we had a state dinner with Queen Elizabeth. And so we all had to get in white tie. I'd never worn white tie before. And I'll never forget that Obama asked us to come back to where he was staying in Buckingham Palace. We're at a hotel. They don't want us anywhere near Buckingham Palace. Um, And so we're back in this room, like, and he's got like white ties taken off and, and we got a couple laptops out and we're going to work on this speech. And first of all, I just remember having this amazing conversation with him where, you know, we're just doing what anybody would do when went to Buckingham Palace. We're like gossiping about the queen and he loved the queen and uh, yeah. he's telling us stories about how straightforward she is and she reminded him just of his his grandmother. And I remember this moment where we stop and look around and there's these huge portraits on the wall of like British monarchs. And Obama's like, yeah, a few years ago I was like, in the state Senate living in a condo, you know? <laughs> and I mean, and it's just like the improbability, you know, he is one of those pe- people like in the roll roll call, of, like just unlikely Americans um, yeah. and sitting there. And then like, then a mouse comes in and some British guy like like Butler or whatever they are is like, uh, excuse me, sir, there's a mouse. Um, and he's just like, don't tell the first lady, you know? And his first reaction is kind of a very human one. Like my, you know, my wife is gonna be scared if there's a mouse. But then I just remember sitting there and like, I don't know if you remember, John, like it was such a surreal thing to be sitting there with this guy who's a pretty normal person. Like I think it's hard for people on the outside to understand that he found it just as strange that he was in Buckingham Palace as us sitting there working on a speech he was going to give the next day in front of the British Parliament at Westminster.
2: I mean, the weirdest thing was then the next morning, I think we went back to that same room in Buckingham Palace to get last minute edits from him and we're standing there with Barack Obama. And in the, in, I guess, the backyard, is that what you call it, in Buckingham Palace? Suddenly the yeah, helicopter, yeah, so. this helicopter lands and the queen walks out of the helicopter in the backyard <laughs> as we're just standing in the room taking the last yeah. minute edits. And I was just like, how the fuck did I end up here?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> what, yeah.
2: what are we doing? How has every also, choice that I've
1: made in life led me here?
2: <laughs> I cannot believe we got away with telling jokes at the beginning of that speech Um in this yeah. like stately place. I just went back it was and speech. a good joke. Speech. We start the speech. Um, I'm told that the last three speakers here have been the Pope, Her Majesty, the Queen, and Nelson Mandela, which is either a very high bar or the beginning of a very funny joke.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and there's I rem- like barristers I remember, sitting like, around with the yeah, white yeah, wigs. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, there's like literally like stone carvings of dead <laughs> bishops on the wall. And I think some of our policy people were
2: like, and some of the national security people were like, <laughs> we I know. don't know, I don't know if you guys should do that joke, I think that's bad. And of course Obama was like, no, yes, let's do it, let's go for it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: If you were to guess where you would say your brain stacked up against other people your age, what do you think? Do you think your memory or attention is above average? Use Lumosity and find out. That's right. Lumosity is the world's most popular brain training program. Even though you can't see the results in a mirror or on a bathroom scale, if you want to keep your brain fit, you've got to treat it like a muscle. So if you want to do that training, sign up for Lumosity and take the free 10 minute fit test to get your baseline scores on three games and see how you stack up against others your age. That's when your training begins. With Lumosity Premium, they will even design a personalized training program from their 60 plus cognitive games and activities to challenge your key abilities, your memory, speed, and problem-solving, all of the things that you need. And with every game, Lumosity keeps track of your progress and shows you how you compare worldwide, all around the globe. Don't you want to know how you stack up? Haven't you been wondering that? Well, you can find out right now. Go to lumosity.com slash crookedconvos, C-O-N-V-O-S, lumosity.com slash crookedconvos to sign up for the free Fit test plus a 30% discount off Lumosity Premium. I would say you'd be using your brain to sign up for that. It is spelled Lumosity, L U M O S I T Y. Lumosity.com slash crooked combos. That's where you take your free fit test and get your 30% off Lumosity Premium. One more time, lumosity.com slash combos to change your life. yeah and then I remember that speech was like again he did the same thing where at the end he he kind of brought in British uh, the British story to to our exceptions and yeah. saying that like you know in in the audience there there were um, you know he was there standing there as a the son of a Kenyan whose you know uh, grandfather was a cook for the British um, but that in the audience there were parliamentarians Um who had been subjects of the British Empire and were now in the British Parliament. So he tried to make room for the that story of progress in, in other places. Um, but I do remember being relieved when that was done and and uh, uh, having a like, well, actually that night, John, there was like that weird party for the Queen that our ambassador yeah. threw. Yeah. And that too, I had a surreal experience because there are these weird mix of celebrities, and I I'm sitting there with like Colin Firth, <laughs> like one in the morning, like having a drink and talking about. Uh, you know, the royal family as if like I have any, you know, insight to offer into that. Uh, and then I think we all went to that. Well, you know, I don't know how much of the detail we want to get into. We all went to that party that the David Cameron people threw for us. That was a that was definitely one of the better uh, trips that I remember. That was
3: my first foreign trip. And I, I remember feeling guilty because you guys were slaving over the speech. I was just there because he was going to go give this rollicking, awesome speech in Dublin. Oh, that
1: was awesome, yeah. So,
3: which was my dream speech. So I'm like banging away on great stories and Yates quotes and inspiration, and's like 25,000 screaming people in Dublin. And you guys are like reworking the parliament speech yeah. that actually mattered <laughs> on the global stage. Well,
1: the crazy thing about that too, though, is like – and this is a something I always try to explain to people here. Like you give a speech in Dublin, right? It's not going to be – like a big story in the United States for more than a day, you know, maybe hopefully it gets on the evening news and it's written up in, you know, a few papers, but in Ireland, like people are still reading that, you know, and like the, the place where he yeah. gave it, probably a plaque. And, and so the part of the pressure of writing the overseas speeches is these things would be kind of minor events in American politics. Um, but they'd be like, particularly because it was Barack Obama, like the, the biggest, you know, statement that I mean, I remember when he gave a speech in Ghana about his vision of Africa in 2009. And, you know, you still meet I still meet people who are like quoting back lines of that speech to me that nobody in the United States probably remembers. And so everywhere or Indonesia, we went, remember the Indonesia speech? Yeah. That,
2: and like mm-hmm. because they know that he grew up there for a while. And that I, I remember like you wrote that speech. I still remember hearing from people be like, oh, the Indonesia speech just like made such a difference to me. Like all these people in Indonesia had never, you know, heard a U.S. president talk like that. It would
3: barely crack the news here, but you'd, it would be wall-to-wall coverage there. Yeah. They'd have, like, helicopters over the motorcade. A billion people would watch the speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is – it is. I mean, it actually, like, in, this is kind of – but at the end of the book, I'm, when I'm wrestling with, like, what uh, is our legacy in the, in the aftermath of the Trump victory, like, one of the unknowable things in politics is, like, how are all those people going to be impacted by Obama's presidency and the words he said and what are they going to do, you know? Because yeah. the unknowable legacy is right, like some kid in Indonesia sees that speech and he's inspired to do something, or you know, right. in Africa he stirs up a debate and they start making reforms in a country. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, what was so hard? You know, if you're if you're a policy expert, let's say you work on healthcare policy, you know, you know like the numbers of people covered or the costs that are brought down. Um, there's a way to measure impact. Uh, as speech writers, I don't know how you guys ever thought about this, but like there was this kind of other piece of what the presidency is and and what I always thought about was that like very few people can name that many things that like John F. Kennedy did legislatively, like the, you know, the peace corps and but everybody remembers like the speeches um, and yeah. how the speeches made them feel um, and how the speeches still make them feel today and I always thought that was such a a strange reality of being a speechwriter, especially for someone like Obama whose speeches are, are closely watched that um uh, you know that you don't quite you'll never know you know you won't quite know the impact of of what you're saying for like 20 or 30 years how are these speeches going to be remembered which ones are going to last i mean i don't know like do you guys have speeches that you hope are the ones that like 20 or 30 years from now they're popping up in anthologies or um you know they're 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 still being quoted in different parts of the world i, I don't know i mean I, I do think it's
2: why i learned in the white house and it's something that i didn't learn until we got to the white house because on the campaign you were so tired and you were doing the same stump speech and at some point you were just like i just got to mail it in and send this out because i'm you know dead tired and in the white house i really did think especially on these foreign policy speeches um that which you know i got to participate in some um you want to put your your all into them and you want to put as much effort as possible and you want to do the research. Um, Terry Zuplat was great about that, one of our other foreign policy speechwriters. Like, you want to do all this research to localize the speech and to make the people who are listening to the speech feel special and heard. Yeah. Um, Because you do think to yourself that, like, years and years and years from now, this is going to make a difference to people in this country. And they're going to go back and find hopefully find inspiration in these words to go make a difference. And um, so it's a lot more pressure, but it's also like, you know, it's it's something that you sort of take pride in um, to really try to make sure that you get these right, even as we're on foreign trips where everyone is unbelievably tired, jet lagged. Yeah. There's five different speeches, 10 bilats, a million press conferences. Yeah. You want to make sure you get them right because it matters to people.
1: Yeah. I mean, Cody, you've been to Ireland and people still talk to you about that uh, Dublin suit, right? I
3: mean, people still. I, I was doing an event last week with um, some Irish youth here in, in Washington and they still quote it and talk about it. I mean, it was a big, big deal there. And they were they were kind of in the worst part of a recession that was worse than ours. And just for a day, they felt special and important, you know, just to have someone come uh, who, <laughs> who has Irish blood like Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we stretched that pretty far. We stretch that pretty far. They stretch it farther.
1: Yeah, yeah, much farther. Yeah,
3: but they, they tell they—they they take it really seriously. And you know, so Pabs made a good point. Terry took all those foreign speeches so seriously. Oh man, yeah, it's amazing. And he would devote, you know, weeks to getting the research down and finding local poetry and getting the right local dialect. And there's this hilarious YouTube that uh, the White House channel put out in the, you know, maybe the last month of the Obama administration, where it's every foreign word Obama said at the beginning of his speeches where he says hello to whatever local country. And it was hilarious because he always mangled the pronunciation. Yeah. Even if we yeah. put it in the speech, he, yeah. just, he just could never get it right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and, and Terry would like uh, – he would like talk to people on the phone. <laughs> like he would find, you know, heroes in northern India and like, like learn their stories. <laughs> and like we'd bring them to the speeches sometimes. And I wouldn't even know this. We'd get to the speech and like I'm moving to India and Terry introduced me to some kid who was a Dalit, an untouchable in India – and Obama had told his story in a speech and uh, earlier, during a previous trip to India when Terry wrote the speech. And the next time, like, we brought this kid and his family, and he's meeting the President of the United States, he's an untouchable, you know? Um, those are, like, the grace notes of, like, having, like, a classy president, but also, like, classy people like Terry and and others who worked around him. Um, but one speech, John, I-, I wanted to talk to you about, because it I took the... The title of my book, The World As It Is, people think, you know, foreign policy people, I think, are going to think it's some statement of realism. Um, (laughs) uh, It's actually different than that. Um, It's from the Nobel address. Uh, So Obama wins the Nobel Peace Prize in 2009, which is a bit of a shock. Like we all thought it was a bit crazy. Um, In retrospect, actually, you know, um, particularly given the current uh, campaigner for the Nobel Peace Prize in the, in the White House, um, you God. know that we're so cynical, but the, I don't know if there's, if there's anything wrong with the Nobel Committee wanting to reward someone who's speaking about you know, international cooperation and diplomacy. In the current context, suddenly that looks more uh, prescient. But um, anyway, I remember like he had just given the Afghan speech announcing the surge. And so he didn't have any time to work on the speech, and he like strangely asked like you and me for research, right, John? It was like the writings yeah. of Reinhold Niebuhr, and, um, <laughs> and uh, like the and, and, and like the
2: just war theory, and I mean, he, yeah. he asked for everything. Yeah, he went like deep. Eisenhower yeah, like speeches, speeches, Gandhi. <laughs> yeah, Gandhi. Advanced statecraft.
1: It was this very eclectic set of readings, which was not a normal process for him, and then. He, but he was kind of like we couldn't get his attention mainly because of Afghanistan. So we did this draft, and I remember the draft dealt with the tension that the tension that we were trying to deal with is like why did he get this peace prize so early in his presidency? And he calls us into his office um, the day we're supposed to leave for Oslo, and he'd rewritten the entire speech by hand in like a legal pad the night before. And the main thing he'd done is he'd completely reframed it around the tension of somebody who's the commander in chief of a nation at war getting a Nobel Peace Prize, which was much more interesting, frankly. And it wrestled yeah. with the notion of as an heir to Gandhi and King, someone who who wouldn't be there without their legacies, he could not um, ignore you know the need to use violence in the world sometimes. Um, and so how do you balance the kind of aspiration – of the type of world that a Gandhi and King are pursuing with like the reality that uh, of the world as it is. And sometimes you need to take out terrorists and um, you need to, to go into Afghanistan. Um, And I remember we just kicked back and forth drafts all day. And then we were up the whole uh, night on the plane and I'm getting his edits and you're getting pieces of it. And and I remember, John, you worked on the ending. Yeah. um, and With, that world um, as it is, world as it ought to be, dynamic as presented. Do you remember, like, I mean, it's not the only time he's done that, but like, uh, what's your memory of how that kind of crystallized? Um, it, it's
2: uh, it's a little foggy since it was a terrible flight to Oslo. It was <laughs> yeah, unbelievably yeah. turbulent. I am not a good flyer, as we know, and I just remember Ben, like, we <laughs> we're sitting in the conference room of Air Force One, and obama's up in the middle of the night and and i'm up and you're up and sam power's up and uh axarod and rom and everyone else are asleep on the plane and valerie and everyone's like they're they're sound asleep and we're just up working on this thing and the plane is just lurching all over the place and i am in the corner of the plane just like sweating (laughs) with sam power next to me you look terrible (laughs) i
1: came in a couple times It looks like your face is going to fall off your body. It was
2: awful. And you're working with Obama on all the edits through most of the speech. And I'm with Sam. And Sam's trying to, like, help me with the ending. And, I mean, how I started thinking about it is where we began this entire conversation, which is um, sort of not just America, but, like, the idea of human nature being – that we're able to perfect human nature. I think the line is – that starts the ending – Uh, but we do not have to think that human nature is perfect for us to still believe that the human condition can be perfected. We don't have to live in an idealized world to still reach for those ideals that will make it a better place. And so it's this idea at the end that like, yes, there will be war. Yes, there will be violence. There will be persecution. There will be just awful things that happen in this world. Um, We should acknowledge that we should be realistic about that, but we shouldn't be, we shouldn't allow that to make us cynical Instead, we should believe that we can still seek peace. That we should strive for peace. Because if we lose that ability, if we lose that ability to say to ourselves that we can achieve peace in our time, we can work towards that, then we lose the very essence of what makes us human. Um, which is a pretty heady thing for a president to say yeah. in a speech. Yeah, but oh, that's yeah. sort of where yeah. he went, well, and all all the readings he had us do from King to Gandhi to you know christian just war theory to all of it sort of they all sort of danced around that belief
1: yeah i you know i realized he was sometimes like he would have a thought in his head that he was working in the speech and took you a while to realize it and, yep. and and at a certain point in the process you're like oh i see what he's trying to say here and when he worked up to the the end there the the pieces you're talking about and saying um you know he, 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 you know he got very personal about Gandhi and King and um you know he said the nonviolence practiced by men like Gandhi and King may not have been practical or possible in every circumstance but the love that they preach, their fundamental faith in human progress that must always be the north star that guides us on our journey you know and yeah. that you know yep. he's for him that's actually a very personal statement because like you know you, you try to live up to this ideal you can't always and then what he also did well, and you, I think, really helped bring this home, and I remember all of us kind of tweaking these sentences, but he ended on people, like not concepts. You know, So yeah. he says, somewhere today in the here and now, in the world as it is, um, which I plagiarized for my title, um, <laughs> a soldier sees he's outgunned but stands firm to keep the peace. A young pro- protester awaits the brutality of her government. Um Uh, but has the courage to march on. A mother facing punishing poverty still takes the time to teach her child. Um, You know, and he always brought it back to ordinary people. So these sweeping, you know, concepts of war and peace and justice um, aren't just ephemeral. They're grounded in like day-to-day realities that are being lived right now. Um, Mm -hmm. That to me is why that became so powerful because what he's saying is, you know, we have to see the world as is in order – to, to pursue the world as it ought to be. And, and you know, ordinary people do that every day in their lives. And so they deserve leaders who will do that as well. I just, I always thought that was like one of the better distillations of 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 a certain element of his, his worldview.
2: Yeah. And also one that I keep thinking as I've been reading these speeches uh, before this conversation, one that we really need right now, um, because it's funny, it almost seems like I don't know if you guys felt like this, but reading some of these speeches, it it feels like reading something from like a different era, like centuries ago, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. not like yeah. a couple yeah. years ago. Because I think you know, I get I'm all caught up in Twitter all day in the news, and it's like awful and garbage and Trump, and it's just like vitriol and everyone's angry, and it can very easily lead people to cynicism and to this belief that like, well we fucked up <laughs> and here's Donald yeah, Trump yeah. and this is what we deserve and we're never going to get out of this. And um, you realize that I think what's missing from uh, what I haven't heard yet from a lot of Democrats or even people on the left is this belief that like, yeah, it's really shitty right now. But if you look to our past, you'll know that it's been even shittier before and, and people have got through it, and they didn't get through it by just sitting around and hoping for things to change. They worked really hard to change things, um, and that's where you get to that level of sort of individual people that you were talking about, Ben. That he always tried to acknowledge.
1: Yeah, I mean, Cody, what would you, you, you were, you know, you were there the whole ten years. Um, like, what, what would you tell somebody coming into a like a job? on the 2020 democratic campaign, you know, what would you tell the, the, like the, uh, the, the, what would you take from these last 10 years to tell the next
3: speechwriter for the next hopefully democratic president? It goes really fast. Um, but it matters. I mean, you know, trying to link together, I'd never even, it never even occurred to me until this conversation that, you know, the world as it is and the world as it ought to be from the Nobel speech is also the thesis of the Selma speech. Yeah, yeah You know, yeah. and his entire presidency. Yep. And in just, a, in just a year and a half for, I mean, that's why Twitter's the worst thing in the world because you get swept up in this cesspool of vitriol and trying to own one another and cynicism. And that's not actually really what the country's all about. And most people aren't that way. Most yeah. people aren't on Twitter. Yeah. You know, and Barack Obama always told us, and we didn't always listen. That, you know, progress is slow, change is hard. You know, for every two steps forward, you take a step back. Sometimes you take two steps back. But the trajectory of this country should give you hope. It's like we were just talking about that. Times have been much worse than this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had we fought a civil war. We had slavery. We had a century of Jim Crow. I mean. Times are better now than they were ten years ago, and twenty years ago, and thirty years ago. It's easy to pick out anything that goes wrong in the world, and there's still a lot of ju- injustice and violence. But things have inexorably gotten better, and that is because people never gave up. And that's why inspiration matters. You know, inspiration on its own doesn't get the job done. Yeah, but it yeah. can inspire people to come together and act in this system of self-government that he believes in. You know, that's I. If if to answer that question, Ben about. And it's a selfish answer about one speech that I want, yeah. you know, the future world to read. It, I, I I hope Selma is the first speech to a future America. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> yeah. this country is changing, and kind of the big question in our politics right now is if you see it changing for the better or for the worse. Yeah. And you know, the Trump administration and its policies—they're actively trying to prevent that change from happening. But I think it's inexorable. Yeah. You know, as long as we keep working towards it, and I hope future generations read that speech and recognize that America and that we have gotten better, and yep. that we're in a better place 10 and 20 years from now.
1: That's a pretty good note to end on, guys. This is a lot of fun. I think so. Um, yeah. We could probably, you know, like, nothing like, we'll probably be, like, 70 years old, like, sitting around, just you know, thinking. telling people <laughs> war stories about <laughs> writing speeches for some guy, and nobody will want to hear them. Hopefully, um, we'll sit there and say, God, we made it. Thank yeah, God we yeah, made yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> the nuclear war didn't happen. Uh, you know, we didn't plunge We'll into be in a fallout shelter. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, then but this there was, was great, the time a that guys. we went to Oslo. <laughs> yeah, oh, let me tell you about the Queen of England. You know, <laughs> the monarchy that no longer exists. Uh,
3: Excuse me, could you um, pass the ration? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oslo's underwater. Yeah, well,
1: there's that. Uh, all right. Well, thanks a lot, guys, uh, and uh, look forward to doing a, a few more of these and looking at you know everything from Iran to you know my wonderful experience with Benghazi. To the Cuban <laughs> negotiations, so uh, it should be a lot. I'm of fun. excited for this the I'm book excited. is
3: great. I I read it straight in seven hours.
1: That, that's it's, some. That was some serious bearing down. Uh, but then, yeah, um, the book is out and uh, available um, uh, when you will hear this. So uh, hope everybody takes a look and uh, look forward to talking more about it. Conversations. I'm Ben Rhodes, and this was the first of my series of Cricket Conversations about the themes in my book, The World As It Is. We'll be covering, going forward, the Russia meddling in our elections, the Cuban negotiations that led to the normalization of relations between the United States and Cuba, and the Benghazi non-scandal and how The combination of Republican politics and cynicism and their media ecosystem led to Trump. And so I encourage you to check back in the weeks to come uh, as we'll have more episodes.